he just grabbed the back of my head and pulled my head to his chest and he said, there's no other way to tell you he's dead. I'll never forget that. That was Susie Etheridge recalling the moment 38 years ago when Daytona Beach Police Chief Charles Willits told her that her husband had been killed in the line of duty. The story of the shooting death of Sam Etheridge, which occurred Christmas morning, 1980, is coming up on Sun Crime State. I'm Tony Holt, crime reporter for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Welcome to Sun Crime State, a weekly podcast that takes an in-depth look at Florida's biggest crime stories of the past and present. In this episode, I'll discuss the DUI arrest of country music star Michael Ray, who rammed his Jeep into the back of another vehicle in a McDonald's parking lot in his hometown of Eustis. Ray has since released a public apology to his fans. Later, I'll discuss the death of Sam Etheridge, who was lured into an apartment building in Daytona's beachside and ambushed. Etheridge emptied his weapon at the shooter, who was hiding inside a closet. The shooter was killed. Etheridge managed to stumble down the hallway to call for an ambulance, but seconds later, collapsed and died from his injuries. My special guest for that segment will be the officer's widow, Susie Etheridge, and his daughter, Michelle Etheridge-Smith. I'll also be joined by Etheridge's fellow officer, Steve Thomas, who is now the police chief in Oakland, Florida. Coming up, a story about a set of skeletal remains linked to the 2000 disappearance of a Tallahassee man who originally was thought to have drowned during a hunting trip. State investigators are now saying he was murdered. Mark Perez, the special agent in charge of the Florida Department of Law Enforcement's Tallahassee office, announced to the world Wednesday a break in a 17-year-old suspicious death case that has baffled investigators. One critical part of the mystery has been solved. Mike Williams' death was no accident. Standing here now, I can tell you that we know what happened to Mike Williams. He was murdered. After receiving new information, FDLE's crime scene unit and special agents spent days conducting an extensive search at an undisclosed location. That search led to the recovery of human remains, and FDLE's crime laboratory analysts confirmed through DNA, through DNA analysis that the human remains are those of Mike Williams. Williams was a 31-year-old Tallahassee real estate appraiser and father of an 18-month-old girl. Perez was not forthcoming with details when he spoke to the media. All he would disclose during Wednesday's press conference was that the victim's remains have been discovered and years of interviews and forensic analysis have led them to the conclusion that Williams was the victim of foul play. Now that we have recovered the remains of Mike Williams and have additional forensic evidence, our focus has shifted to bringing those responsible for his death to justice. And we will not stop until that is done. Williams was an outdoorsman, an avid hunter and fisherman. 
He was the classic rags-to-riches story, according to an article written about him earlier this month in the Tallahassee Democrat. Williams grew up in a trailer. He worked his way through high school as a stock clerk at a local food lion. He attended college and made something of his life. In fact, he was earning a six-figure salary before he died. Williams went missing the morning of December 16, 2000, when he went duck hunting by himself on Lake Seminole. His wife expected him home by noon, but he never returned. He never called. His boat was recovered, but his body wasn't. It was believed he may have drowned and possibly been eaten by alligators. Earlier this month, Brian Winchester, who was William's best friend, was sentenced to 20 years in prison for kidnapping William's widow, Denise. Winchester actually married Denise after he had helped her take out a large life insurance policy on William's before his disappearance. It has been reported that Denise received more than $1.5 million in death benefits. There's another twist in this story. Brian and Denise Winchester separated in 2012, and she filed for divorce the following year. In August 2016, Brian Winchester sneaked into his estranged wife's vehicle without her knowing. One day, while driving and talking to her sister on the phone, Winchester climbed over the back seat and took away his wife's phone. He yelled directions at her and held her at gunpoint. She talked him down and he left her. He begged her not to call police. After she was free and clear of him, Denise drove to a police station and told them what had happened. Winchester was arrested on kidnapping and armed burglary charges and jailed without bail. His recent conviction and 20-year sentence is related to those charges. Perez refused to answer questions Wednesday about whether investigators are eyeing Winchester and or his estranged wife as persons of interest in William's murder. I know you've waited years to learn what happened. And while this case is 17 years old, it just recently turned into a homicide investigation. I can tell you that we are currently conducting interviews and following leads. This case is moving forward. Coming up, details on the DUI arrest of country singer Michael Ray. Nine-year-old country music star Michael Ray was arrested Wednesday on DUI and drug charges after he allegedly rammed his car into another in a McDonald's drive-through. The incident took place in Eustis, the singer's hometown. According to a police report, Ray, whose actual name is Michael Roach, was in the drive-through of the McDonald's restaurant on Bay Street around 3:30 a.m when his foot slipped off the brake pedal of his Jeep. The front fender wound up striking the vehicle in front of him. Eustace police showed up, and Ray told them he had come from a bar in Tavares, which is one town over. The Jeep he was driving wasn't his. What do you want us to do about your car? Do you have somebody we can call to come get it so we don't have to tow it? Yep. Okay. Is 
your cell phone in your car? Uh, no, ma'am. I believe it's in my in your pocket. Okay. He's not the registered owner of that. The registered owner be able to come get it, or at least we can call the registered owner. Yes. Before the arrest, police said they noticed Ray had bloodshot eyes, which could also be seen in his mugshot taken later that morning. Ray failed his field sobriety test, and he refused a breathalyzer test. He was released after posting $6,000 bail. Police also found a glass bottle inside his vehicle containing a brown liquid. Ray told police it was weed oil. Ray surged to fame following a number of hits in 2015, such as Kiss You in the Morning and Think a Little Less. Days after his arrest, Ray issued a public apology via People magazine. He stated, quote, I want to apologize to my fans, family, and my hometown community for placing myself in this situation. I am so very sorry for the disappointment these events have caused everyone. I know it will take time. However, I will do everything I can to rebuild your trust. Coming up, the story of a Christmas Day cop shooting that devastated a family, a police department, and a community. Sam Etheridge Jr. had the physique of an NFL linebacker and a heart of a lion. And he was a big kid. The Alabama native was a favorite of the Daytona Beach Police Department. He told jokes. He played pranks. Mainly, he loved his job, and he made everyone around him love theirs. He married his high school sweetheart, Susie. The couple had two daughters, Michelle and Lynn. Susie and Michelle recently sat down with me to talk about Sam. They talked about the zest he had for being a cop. He patrolled Daytona's beachside and all those seedy bars that lined it. All the employees and barflies knew him and respected him. Oh, he, he, I believe he would have worked on that police department for free. <laughs> he loved it that much. He loved doing details. He loved. He loved working like a, uh, spankies big, big and big daddies. Spankies? No, not spankies. Big, big daddies, daddies and... Um, the wreck? The wreck. That's it. Wreck the wreck. Bar. Bar, yeah. But Big Daddy's was a big daddy's. Oh, a they loved Sam. <laughs> that Big Daddy's was a big bar on the beach side. There were several Big they Daddies were all, all around Main Street area. Yeah. It was during the early morning hours of Christmas morning, 1980, when Daytona Beach police received a call of shots fired in a beachside neighborhood, one that didn't have the most sterling reputation one in which drug activity was the norm. One of Sam's closest friends at the agency was Stephen Thomas, and he remembers what life was like as a patrol officer in those days, and he remembers how willing Sam was to answer a call if he was closer to it. The call, as I remember it, the call actually went out to another officer, but oftentimes if you're closer to the place where the call goes out, you'll you'll volunteer to go ahead and take the call. And I, I don't think I'm wrong about this. I think the call actually went out to another officer, and Sam was closer to 141 South Grandview, which is where the uh, 
the incident took place, and I believe he uh, he came up on the radio and volunteered to go ahead and take it uh, and respond as well as the officer who actually got the call. And uh, and that's just the way Sam was. I mean, all of us uh, would, would volunteer from time to time to, to take a call if we were closer, but uh, it doesn't surprise me that that night Sam uh, stepped up to do that. Etheridge showed up along with Lieutenant Neil Klain and Sergeant Walker Carr. The home was at 141 South Grandview Avenue. The man who answered the door led them down a narrow hallway to a back bedroom. The very thing cops and their loved ones fear the most was about to happen to those three men. They were about to be ambushed. Within seconds, a man inside the bedroom closet opened fire. Sam was shot, but he managed to empty his six-shooter. Klain fired five rounds of his own. Carr fired twice toward the closet after seeing the gunman's hand move after the initial wave of gunfire. The shooter was dead. Klain took a round in the side just below his ribcage. It came from Etheridge's gun. A bullet had pierced Sam's heart, but he managed to stagger out of that room, walk down the hallway, and find a chair he could prop himself up on. He called for an ambulance for Lieutenant Klain. Seconds later, Sam's heart stopped beating. He was dead. Sam was the first Daytona Beach police officer to die in the line of duty in 35 years. No other Daytona cop since then has been fatally shot while on duty. That tragedy altered the lives of his family and shook up a department of more than 200 officers. To better understand what Sam's death meant, it requires a closer look at how he grew up and how he lived his life. Born shortly after World War II in Selma, Alabama, Sam moved with his family to Daytona Beach while he was still a boy. His father, Sam Sr., was a press man for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Sam met Susie the summer before high school. Sam was a star athlete at school and made friends easily. He had no problem making Susie his girlfriend. Here is Susie telling me about what she liked about Sam from the get-go. Good looking. He was very good looking, very athletic in everything. He was top in football, baseball, basketball, track. Um, I mean, he got at most athletic our senior year. He it was in the eighth grade and he was playing varsity football. One day in the spring of 1965, the couple visited Sam's relatives in Selma. They looked ahead toward a bridge and saw it flooded with people. They had no idea what was going on. It was the Freedom March from Selma to Montgomery, led by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. They didn't know it at the time, but they were witnessing history. After the pair graduated from Mainland High School, Sam started a job as a linesman with Florida Power and Light. Susie pursued her career as a nurse. Sam became a reserve police officer through the Daytona Beach Police Department. He was ready to ditch the hard hat for a police cap. Law enforcement was his second love. 
He enrolled in rookie school to become a full-time police officer. During his time there, he befriended Thomas, who was now 63 years old and still a law enforcement officer. He is the police chief in Oakland, Florida. Yeah, actually, uh, Sam and I met when we were attending uh, the police academy, or we called it rookie school back then. Both of us had uh, been hired by the Daytona Beach Police Department. Sam had already served uh, several years with Daytona Beach as a reserve. He was a leader in that class because he had already had already done some time as a reserve officer, so he, he quickly gained the respect of a lot of us who had not been in police work. Sam's physique impressed his friends and may have even given him an edge on the street. In one instance, he took on two bar brawlers at once and subdued them both. Sam was um, well-equipped physically to, to be in law enforcement. He was not very tall, but he was quite broad. He was like a fire plug. And uh, he had a nickname of Buddha. And uh, if Sam was with you on a call, of course, you felt, you felt pretty good because uh, his physical stature was, uh, was reassuring. As a father, Sam was compassionate. He liked to be the authority figure at work, but was more of a teddy bear with his daughters. He relied on Susie to instill discipline. She was the bad cop at home. He preferred to play the good cop. Michelle, in particular, idolized her father. She was a daddy's girl. He was known as Buddha on the baseball team. And I was little Buddha. And she was little Buddha. Oh, yeah. I was the bat girl on their softball team. Oh. The police department. The police department for Daytona PD. Michelle is now employed with the Daytona Beach Police. She works in the records department. Even though she was 13 when her father died, she still has clear memories of him and his playful personality. Her mother does, too. He had a hell of a sense of humor. Yes. Steve Thomas will tell you that. Uh, I used to have the tapes of Steve and Sam in the patrol car together. I mean, oh, it was, they were my just God, crack you up. It was, like, uh, it was like a comedy team. The two of them in he the patrol was, car. His personality. Was he just, had a, was so Sam funny. had a hell of a good personality. and That's why he had so many friends. Yeah. The news broke about Sam's death immediately, and word spread far. A cop killing on Christmas Day was sure to become a national news story. And it was. Susie's friends, who also were Sam's friends, who left Daytona and immigrated north, found out about the shooting. Paul Harvey, the famous broadcaster for the ABC radio network, read the story on air. It was heard on household radios, literally, from Daytona to Anchorage. He announced it and said um, about Sam's death and being killed on Christmas Day. And yeah, that's how a lot of people heard about it up there that had migrated after we graduated and then after they went to college and... They migrated way up north, and some of my classmates migrated all the way up to Alaska. They, they heard from Paul, Paul Harvey. They heard it from Paul Harvey. Yes. Must have been shocking for them to hear that. Oh, yes, because, yes, because it's Christmas Day, and, you know, your family's here, and everybody's around the tree, and then they hear that on the news. 
The man who shot and killed Sam was a Texas drifter named Arthur Stone. On Christmas morning, Stone and his friend, Joseph Johnson, visited the place on South Grandview Avenue for a drug deal. Something went wrong, and Stone ended up fighting one guy and shooting at another. One of those men called police and told them the whereabouts of Stone and Johnson. They were inside the apartment at 141 South Grandview Avenue. Stone and Johnson waited for police. They decided to set a trap. Sam showed up at the door along with Lieutenant Klain and Sergeant Carr. Johnson opened the door and led the police down the hallway. Sam followed him. So did Klain. Carr checked the other areas of the apartment before heading down the hallway. Johnson led them into the bedroom. Then he jumped on top of the bed. At that moment, Sam pulled his gun. He told Johnson to freeze. Stone, who was hiding in the closet, opened the door and pointed his gun. Klain turned around and came face to face with him. He would later describe Stone as having a weird expression on his face. Stone opened fire. Sam returned fire. So did Klain, who also kicked the closet door against Stone. By the time Carr emerged and fired a couple rounds from his weapon, about 15 rounds had gone off. Holes were found in every wall of the room. Klain was wounded by a bullet from Sam's gun. Stone was dead. Sam was near death, but he didn't realize it at the time. He stumbled out of the room and called for the ambulance. It goes into Sam, and Sam got out of the room and walked down the hall and got on his knees onto a chair and said, um, send, send an ambulance for Lieutenant Klain. He's been shot. I heard that. I heard those tapes. So he was shot too, but he, he only shot said... He was in shock. He, he did didn't not know even he had been shot. He, he just... did not even know he was shot. Okay. He laid back and died. Hours earlier, he had been singing Christmas carols with his wife and kids. Then he had put on the uniform and gone to work. Susie and her daughters went to one of her friend's houses to help her wrap last-minute Christmas gifts. They returned home late on Christmas Eve and were welcomed by Susie's cousin, who had traveled from Miami to spend Christmas with the Etheridges. The girls went to bed, and Susie started cooking Christmas dinner with her cousin. During the early morning hours of Christmas Day, Michelle looked out her bedroom window and saw a patrol vehicle pull into the driveway. She thought her father had come home. It was actually one of Sam's fellow officers. He told Susie she needed to come to the hospital. Sam had been hurt. She told Michelle to go back to bed. Her two daughters waited at home while Susie and her cousin went to Halifax Hospital. He took me to the emergency room at Halifax where all these police officers were there. And no one would say anything until the chief came in to tell me. But everybody, everyone was waiting for Sam to come. Everybody was waiting for Sam. Sam to get there because thought he was, you know, he just hurt a little bit. Like maybe shot in the hand or something. Susie worked at the hospital. She knew all the signs. 
She knew the protocol after a patient dies. She knew the very room people were brought into when doctors delivered the news. She was led in there, but she still didn't realize what was happening. By this time, she still hadn't even been told that Sam had been shot, only that he had been hurt. I mean, it just did not register at all. And they took me into the room where I know that's where they take that's where they take you when your loved one has passed away. Is it like a chaplain's office or something? It's it was just a room. It's all rearranged she now, but work work in there. the ER and, and she I knew, knew what that room exactly was, what that room was. It didn't even register. Right. So they were leading you into a room, and you must have thought, "Don't take me in that room." No, that only I did one thing. Never thought of it. No, no, no. They're just wanting privacy. They're just we're going to go in there for <laughs> privacy. She was led inside. No one was talking. Only one person was allowed to come in and speak to her, Police Chief Charles Willits. He finally appeared. He walked through the gauntlet of cops and entered the room. The Chief Willits was there, and he came right in, knowing me since I was a little girl. So, I mean, you know, I knew him very well. I called him Uncle Billy, not Chief. That's how well I knew the Chief. So he um, he just grabbed back of my head and pulled my head to his chest and he said there's no other way to tell you he's dead i'll never forget that he was he was just as upset as if it was his own child that had just gotten killed because he loved sam too thomas was late getting there he was off duty that day it was his first christmas he got to spend with his family sam knew it too and teased him about ducking out of a holiday shift That was their last conversation, a day or so before Christmas Eve. Like all of their conversations, it was filled with a lot of banter and a lot of laughter. Around 3 a.m., Thomas got the call to go to the hospital. He had no clue what was in store. Quite frankly, um, I thought it was Sam playing a trick on me. I thought uh, since I wouldn't go in and ride with him, he was uh, he was going to razz me a little bit and, and get me out of bed anyway. So uh, I went in, and as soon as I got to the, the Halifax hospital and saw all the cars, I knew that it, it wasn't a prank. He went inside and saw Klain heavily medicated and lying on a hospital bed. Klain mumbled something to Thomas, who heard him say Sam's name, but couldn't discern anything else. Thomas walked through the hospital entered the holding room and saw Susie. He saw her expression. He knew right away that Sam was gone. He hugged her tightly. It was a, it was a jolt. It was, uh, you know, your worst nightmare uh, coming true. Uh, you know, we all know in police work that, you know, the, the chances are there for us to be hurt or killed in the line of duty. But when it, when it really happens, uh, you know, it hits home and it's very sobering. And I can tell you that uh, everybody's everybody's heart sunk. Sam was well liked by so many people. Susie told her preacher to deliver the news to her daughters. She didn't have the strength that morning to do it. The words would never have come out. Michelle and Lynn found out Christmas morning their father was dead. Deaths during the holiday season erase all cheer. They even make ensuing Christmases difficult. They were for Thomas. 
Christmases haven't been the same. Um, you know, we all move on. I can tell you that the the Christmases that occurred in the immediate aftermath of, of 1980 were difficult. Uh, officers would uh, go up to the, the cemetery and, and spend some time at, uh, at Sam's gravesite. Um, During those first few Christmases after Sam's death, Susie tried to force the joy. More presents, more songs, more decorations. She wanted to be more festive. She didn't want to see her daughters and her family be sad on that day. I would go overboard and how many, you know, presents. I mean, there was just unbelievable amounts. I would just, I just totally went overboard trying to compensate for the loss of their father. I was trying to make up for his absence. Klain returned to work after his injuries healed, but he was never the same. Post-traumatic stress disorder was not a widespread diagnosis at the time, but it was likely that he suffered from that, according to those close to him. In 1982, he retired from police work. He died in 1990 of a heart attack. Johnson was sentenced to 75 years in prison. He was up for parole a few years ago, but the board denied his request for release. Susie and Michelle attended the hearing. So did then Daytona Beach Police Chief Mike Chitwood and State Attorney R.J. Larizza. Susie and Michelle were told by someone on the board that Johnson, who was now 65, was still going to get released someday. The Florida Department of Corrections has a listed release date for Johnson on its website, November 21, 2019. If he is released then, he will have served nearly 39 years behind bars. One of Sam's closest friends in the department was Frank Genovese. He left the Daytona Beach Police Department and joined the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office. In June 1982, Genovese, then a SWAT member for the agency, responded to the scene where a man was randomly firing rounds from a high-powered rifle. A bullet from that rifle killed Genovese. It was another devastating loss for a tight-knit group of police officers. Perhaps no death has rocked that department more than Sam's. It happened on Christmas Day. It happened to a fun-loving guy. It happened to one of the strongest, toughest cops Thomas had ever known. You know, when you suit back up, you understand, you understand even more clearly that if it could happen to somebody like Sam Etheridge, somebody who was well-trained, well-disciplined, cut out to be a police officer, if it could happen to him. For Susie, two words perfectly describe Sam's legacy. Big heart. Uh, uh, let me tell you, Chief Willits's niece. Linda, this is how this is typical Sam. She had a fire in her house. She had two little kids. Guess who went out and bought them all new? All their presents burnt up under the tree. Guess who bought them all new presents and took them to the house? Sam. That's how he was. He was selfless for sure. Oh yeah. Yes, he was. He was very big, big heart. Thank you for listening. Tune in next week when I tell the story of a jailbreak in Flagler County. 
that resulted in the shocking vehicular death of a Palm Coast preacher. My special guest for that segment will include former Flagler Sheriff Jim Manfrey. Join us then. You can find Tony on Twitter at Tony Crime Writer or email him at Tony.Holt at news-jrnl.com. Be sure to rate us on iTunes. Sun Crime State is recorded by Tony Holt and produced by Chris Bridges for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Thank you.